Good evening, and welcome to episode 133 of the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and today we're looking at one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite miracle stories in Scripture from John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. From Galilee, Jesus returned to Jerusalem to observe one of the Jewish feasts. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Aramaic, the House of Loving Kindness, or in Aramaic, Bethsaida. Uh, We often say Bethesda. Surrounded by five shaded porches. Hundreds of sick people were lying under the shaded porches, the paralyzed, the blind, and the crippled, all of them waiting for their healing. For an angel of the Lord periodically descended into the pool to stir the waters, and the first one who stepped into the pool after the water swirled would instantly be healed. Now, if you're reading along in your Bible, that fourth verse may not appear in your text. You'll notice that yours goes from verse 3 to verse 5. If you have an honest text, this may be in parentheses, or there may be a footnote that says the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include verse 4. And there's a good reason for that that we'll talk about. It's included in translations that want you to understand the reasoning of the man who says, I have nobody to carry me into the water. Verse 6. Among the many sick people lying there was a man who had been incomplete, unwhole, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that the man had been incomplete for a long time. And he said to him, Do you really want to get well? The incomplete man said, Sir, there's no way I can find healing, for I have no one to carry me into the water when the angel comes. As soon as I try to get to the edge of the pool, someone always jumps in ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, pick up your sleeping mat, and walk. Immediately he stood up. He was healed. So he rolled up his mat and walked again. Now Jesus worked this miracle, but by the, by the way, on the Sabbath. When the Jewish leaders saw the man walking along carrying his sleeping mat, they objected and said, What are you doing carrying that on the Sabbath? Don't you know that's against the law? It's not right for you to carry things on the Sabbath. He answered them, Well, the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk out of there. What man, they asked him, who was the man who ordered you to carry something on a Sabbath? But the healed man, the word here is whole, he was the incomplete man, now he's the whole man. The whole man couldn't give them an answer, for he didn't yet know who it was, since Jesus had already slipped away into the crowd. A short time later, Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, Look at you now, you're healed. Walk away from your sin so that nothing worse will happen to you. Then the man went to the Jewish leaders to inform them, It was Jesus who healed me. From that day forward, the Jewish leaders began to persecute Jesus 
because of the things he did on the Sabbath. This is a great story. And and there are so many things at work here. So we don't know how much longer, how, how long a time it was that Jesus stayed in Galilee, but from Galilee, eventually he went back to Jerusalem. It was during one of the feasts. John doesn't tell us which one, just that it was a feast. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate, there was a pool called Bethesda, which means the house of loving kindness or the house of healing kindness. Works either way. Um, The assumption in the word there is that those who are loved are healed or that love is healing and that to leave someone unhealed is to be unloving to them. There's a whole immense wordplay right there just in the name of the place. Hundreds of sick people were lying under the several covered porches. There are five covered overhanging porches around the pool and hundreds of people were lying in the shade, back away from the pool, in the shade, waiting. Who were they? Look at the words here. They're specific words. The paralyzed, the blind, and the crippled. The paralyzed, the blind, and the crippled. All of them waiting to be healed. For from time to time, an angel of the Lord would descend into the pool to stir the water, and the first one who stepped into the pool after the waters were stirred would instantly be healed. Stop. Let's go back to the question we asked as we read the book of Job in every chapter, sometimes several times in each chapter. Is that how your God works? Seriously. Is your God the God who heals the first one to the water? Is your God who heals the guy who needs it the least? Think about that. The guy who's going to beat everybody else to the water is the guy who moves the best, who moves the easiest, who has the least impediment. The guy who needs it the least always gets healed in this system. Is that how your God works? Your God is the is the Powerball God. So whoever's number comes up gets healed. That's not even that random. It, it really is prejudicial. It's the guy who gets there first. Is that how your God works? The first is the best. That's not how Jesus' God works because Jesus said in his kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. That's how God works. This is a superstition. This is nothing but superstition. This is not God. You can imagine these hundreds of people lying around in the shade and all it takes is one person to say, hey, the water moved. And up they go, crawling, limping, running, leaning on each other, leaning on their friends, trying to be the first to get to the water. And whoever's first in says, yay, I'm healed. Well, of course he is. He was the fastest there. He didn't really need healing. See how that doesn't work? It's superstitious. The God who 
awards the fastest runner with the biggest prize. God, the Heavenly Olympic Committee. That's not who God is. But these people are lost in the superstition. Now, if you really believed that was true, if you really believed that was the way to get healed here at Bethesda, I'd go lay my fat self right out on the edge of the pool, teetering on the edge, so that if anybody said, hey, it moved, all I got to do is lean slightly and splash. My big self is in the water, right? If you really believed that's the way it worked, wouldn't you do that? But no, they lay back in the shade and wait for somebody to yell, and then there's the spectacle of all the all the crippled and lame and blind and and broken people trying to clamor themselves over to that water. And one guy gets in and the rest of them quit. I'm not first. He beat me. I'm going back to the shade. Among the many sick people lying there was a man who had been, the NIV says, an invalid. That's a great word because you break it up into invalid an unvalid person, an invalidated one. The word literally means unwhole, incomplete. There was lying there an incomplete man who had been there for 38 years. Think about that. Jesus is about 30 at the time this story is written of him. The night Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this dude had been lying by this pool already for eight years. The night Jesus was born, this guy had been lying there already for eight years. Now he's been there 38 years. We don't know how old he was. He's been lying by the pool eight years longer than Jesus has been alive. And in their culture, they respect older people automatically. So it's really interesting that when Jesus sees him lying there and knew that the man had been crippled for such a long time or had been incomplete, it's a different word than paralyzed or crippled that's used to describe the people lying by the pool up above earlier in the text. It doesn't really say he's crippled. When Jesus knew that he'd been there, in his invalid state for such a long time, he said to him, do you really want to be healed? Now, to ask an older person that, it seems kind of disrespectful, doesn't it? Jesus looks at this dude who's been there 38 years and said, do you even want to get healed? It's really an interesting question. It goes not to the man's disability, it goes to his heart and his desire and his motivation. Jesus is almost asking him, are you done playing this game? Are you getting something out of lying here every day? It's almost like Dr. Phil saying, and how's that working for you? Right? Do you really want to get well? The invalid replied, Sir, there's no way I can be healed, for I have no one to carry me 
into the water when the angel comes. As soon as I try to crawl down to the edge of the pool, someone else has already jumped in ahead of me. Wait, wait, that's not the answer. <laughs> Jesus asked him if he even wanted to get well. He didn't say, yes, sir, absolutely. He said, he answers with an excuse. I can't. I got nobody to carry me down there. This is about the time that I think, dude, if that's the way to get healed, go balance yourself right on the edge. Have your friends cover you with cloth so you don't get sunburned. Have somebody come and scoop water out on you to keep you cool from time to time. But if you believe that healing is in that water the moment it gets stirred, go teeter on the edge of it. Better yet, go sit in it. You'll already be there. It's just crazy. He answers Jesus with an excuse. Who are the people who answer an honest question, not with an honest answer, but with an excuse? The mentally or emotionally ill. The depressed person answers, not with an answer, but an excuse. It's the Eeyore answer. Oh, poo, I got nobody to carry me. I guess I'm not going to make it down there again today. Right? That's the Eeyore answer. It's the depressed person's answer. This guy is incomplete. He's not crippled or paralyzed. His body is fine. It's his self-concept. It's his mind. It's his heart. It's his his ability to believe in anything that's broken. He doesn't really believe that he'll ever get healed. He doesn't believe that that's an angel moving the water or he'd go sit in it. But he's up in the shade. His sickness has become his entire identity. You know people like this. I know people like this. They identify themselves by their diagnosis. And they'll tell you the list of medications they're on by their, by their pharmaceutical names. Not their brand names, but by the technical pharmaceutical names. Yeah, Kevin, oh, I got that old nervous disorder, you know, the flipperty gibbets. And I take that fluoroxycontinine for it. I've been on the fluoroxycontinine now for five years. I'm up to 800 milligrams a day now. And they'll list you not just one, but five or six medications. And they know the dosage and the size of the pill and the color and the shape. They are identifying themselves by their malady, by their, by their diagnosis, not by their identity, not by their personhood, but by their sickness. That's a person who's lost their way in their heart. They have become incomplete. There's a hole in them that's just missing. And it has to do with their ability to trust, their ability to believe, their ability to have faith, 
their ability to even believe in themselves. So Jesus says to him, Get up, stand, pick up your mat, and walk out of here. Immediately, he stood up, he was healed. He rolled up his mat and walked right out. Jesus has faith in this guy. It isn't that this guy has any faith in Jesus at all. He doesn't know who Jesus is. But Jesus has faith in this guy, and in doing so, restores his faith in himself. He doesn't need to believe in Christ. He probably already believes in God because he thinks it's an angel that stirs the waters. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Stand up, roll up your mat, and walk out. And the guy does. Now, just an aside, the day that Jesus did this miracle, oh, yes, it was a Sabbath. So as he walks out the gate into the public, there are Jewish leaders out there, and they see him. And he's walking along carrying his mat. Now, they're not fascinated that he's walking. They don't know who he is. They've never cared about him. They've never gone in to pray for those who are lying around the pool. They've never given a rip about those people because those people don't come in the synagogue and put coins in the treasury. They don't know him, but he's not supposed to be carrying that mat. By the law of Moses, that's work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. He's not keeping our Sabbath holy because he's carrying his ratty old mat. And so they said to him, what are you doing carrying that? Don't you know this is the Sabbath? It's not lawful for you to carry anything on the Sabbath. And he looks at him and says, but the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk out. Do you hear how profound that is? They never healed him. They never so much as came by and prayed with him. They don't know who he is. They just don't want him carrying that mat. That's against their law. Put that mat down. And he says, but the man who made me whole told me to carry it. You see, they believed that if you were sick in any way, it was because you'd sinned. And in order to be healed, you'd have to be forgiven. They believed that in order to be forgiven, you had to bring a sacrifice to them at the temple. This guy's never brought a sacrifice. He couldn't get there. They sure weren't coming to him to bring him redemption, forgiveness, restoration. They weren't bringing God to him. He had to come to them. And now he's walking and he says, the man who healed me, which is the same as saying, the man who forgave my sin and made me whole and made me clean, told me to pick it up and carry it. What man? They asked him. Who was this man who ordered you to carry something on the Sabbath? They totally missed the point that he's been forgiven and made whole and healed. They're just worried about who told him to carry something on the Sabbath. But the healed man, now he's not the incomplete man, now he's the whole man, but the man couldn't give them an answer for he didn't yet know who it was that had healed him because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd while he turned and went the other way out of there. 
A short time later, Jesus found the man. What's that mean? What's that phrase mean? A short time later, Jesus found the man. It means he was looking for him. Jesus has come back to hunt this guy out. He sought this guy out on purpose. Found him at the temple. What's he doing at the temple? Well, if he's been, if he's been incomplete, then he's been an outcast from the temple. And now if he's complete, he has to go show himself to the priests and say, I've been healed. And he'll pay his little redemption tax and they'll restore him to membership in the temple. Now he's got access to God again. So he's standing in line at the temple to show himself to the priests. And Jesus finds him there and says, look at you. All whole and healed and complete and stuff. You're walking. Now walk away from your sin. Or something worse might happen to you. Are you kidding me now, Jesus? Something worse? What could be worse? That dude has been lying there since before Jesus was born. He hasn't believed in himself. He's got no friends. He's got no family. Nobody to carry him into the water. He's been alone for 38 years. It's not going to get worse. I'm not sure if Jesus is joking here or if he really means that it could get worse on this poor dude. I kind of think this is tongue in cheek. Walk away from sin. The guy's been lying in the shade. What kind of sin could he possibly do? Well, his sin was he didn't trust God to heal him. He didn't cry out to God for help. He laid there waiting for God to show up. Believed in a superstition more than he believed in the true healer. The one whose name in the Old Testament was the God who heals you. He would rather trust a superstition than the God who heals you. That was his sin. Jesus says, walk out of this faithlessness. Walk out of this faithlessness and back into faith. Back into the favor and the family of God. Or yes, if you're faithless, something worse could happen to you. Then the man ran straight off to the Jewish leaders to inform them. Well, he's going to them anyway. He's got to show himself to them to show that he's been healed. So that's where he's going. And he says to them, it was Jesus who healed me. Now remember, it was just two chapters ago that Nicodemus came to Jesus to have him explain what in the world was going on with him. These teachers sent Nicodemus to find out from Jesus who he was and what he was doing. But now they find out He's healed this guy on the Sabbath. From that day forward, the Jewish leaders began to persecute Jesus because of the things he had a bad habit of doing on the Sabbath. How dare you bring God into this world on the Sabbath? Because he tried to show them that God was God seven days a week, not just one. 
and that on the day that God was supposedly really God to them, God wanted to do supernatural things. He wanted to actually touch people on that day that was supposed to be his holy day. And the Jews had totally given that up. They were in charge of that day. That wasn't God's day. That was their day. That was their day to shine, to do the sacrifices, to lead the worship service, to stand up in front in their best finery and look all holy. By Jesus' time, there are so many priests working in rotation in the temple, they don't get this chance but once or twice in their entire professional career. This is our day. Jesus, stop showing us up on our day. It's our time. You can do this Sunday through Friday, but Saturday, buddy, that's our day. Get out of here on our day. I went to church one time with these people. They'd invited us. I took a bunch of teenagers, a friend of mine and I. He was the youth minister. I was the worship pastor. We took the teenagers from our church, and we listened to this seminar on on the devil in modern music. Kind of crazy. And before the seminar started, the worship leader got up and started leading praise and worship music. We're cool with that. We like praise and worship music, so we start singing. It was a song that we'd never heard before, but it was very repetitive and easy to learn. So we're standing, we're singing, we're clapping, we're trying to get into it. It's different than what we usually do, but hey, let's learn something new from somebody else. And everybody seemed to be having a great time worshiping God. So we sang the song for, goodness gracious, 15, 20 minutes. And then the worship leader said, when I first got this song, I didn't know the English words because God taught it to me in the spirit. I'm sure that many of you know it in the spirit as well. So let's sing it in the spirit. All of you who know the spirit will know the words. And so they started singing in tongues. An activity that appears nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. And and I thought, well, this should be interesting. I wasn't a student or a practicer, a practitioner of speaking in tongues, but I thought, ah, I'm going to get to hear people who practice this gift, who experience it, and they're all going to sing in the same language. It just won't be one I understand. And so I start listening to the people around me. And the guy next to me sounds like a, a Hebrew student. Interesting. And the lady in front of me sounds like she's Spanish. Or Italian, not quite sure which. Not even close to what he was saying. And the guy behind me is singing in some language that sounded like Viking talk. And... And I thought, none of them are singing the same words. So does the Spirit speak five different languages all at once? The kids in our group were looking at us. Youth youth pastor's looking at me. And he said, I think we should leave. I said, really? And the girl standing between us was a, a teenager, a leader in the youth group. She said, these people are crazy. 
And I remembered what Paul said to the New Testament church. When you get together, one person, one at a time, and at most, two or three in succession, never more than two or three in any service, always one at a time, and always with an interpreter. That's how we speak in tongues, one at a time. This is not chaos. God is not a God of chaos. This is order. If you don't do it this way, people are going to think you're drunk. And that's exactly what it sounded like. So we left and we took our kids back to the church and we we opened up the Bible to 1 Corinthians and we talked about what, what the real gift of speaking in tongues in the scripture looks like, how it's practiced, what is a prayer language. It doesn't occur in scripture. It's just something that other people do out of their own practice and tradition, but it's not biblical. Sorry, it's not in the Bible. And we tried to help our kids see the real biblical gift of speaking in an unlearned language, a language, a glossos, a known language that you simply haven't learned or been trained to speak. And suddenly God empowers you to speak that language in order to evangelize someone who does speak that language. Aren't these all, aren't these men all Galileans? How is it they say at Pentecost that we hear them speaking in our own language? See, there was somebody there that spoke it and they're preaching it for their benefit. That's the real gift of speaking in tongues if the Bible is your authority. So a couple days later, I worked with the pastor's wife from that church and I'm at work and I see her and she says, hey, thanks for joining us for the service the other night. I wish you could have stayed. I said, well, our kids were really uncomfortable in that atmosphere. I was trying to be kind. And she said, your kids are uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit? I said, oh, no, no. Our kids are uncomfortable with the unholy spirit of the unbiblical practice of blathering along in gibberish. I mean, she did ask for it. She said, why do you think it's gibberish? I said, because Paul says to the Corinthians, if you're going to speak in tongues, one at a time, no more than two or three. There's no instruction for singing in tongues anywhere in the Bible. And there's certainly no instruction. In fact, there's a prohibition against everybody doing it all at once. And she said, oh, well, that's just the way we do it. That's just the way we do it? Regardless of what the scripture says? That's just the way we do it? The Pharisees persecuted Jesus because he didn't do it the way they did it. Forget what scripture says. They had manipulated and twisted scripture to say, this is what the scripture says. You can't carry anything on the Sabbath. The scripture never says that. The command was, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's it. They're going to persecute Jesus because he shells out some wheat in his hand. He rubs the grains together to shell them out from the husks. And that's grinding grain. It's not even close to grinding grain. But that's what they're going to accuse him of. He's threshing. Like like he's winnowing out a huge pile of grain and rubbing it between threshing stones. He's threshing on the Sabbath. 
but he's not. But that's how they're going to twist the real word of God to do what they want to do to give them control over other people. That's what Pharisees do. That's not what Jesus does. He sets this guy free. He turns him loose from the things he's been told, from the things he's thought, from the things he has he has misbelieved and misthought to himself for 38 years. Jesus sets him free and turns him loose, a new man. And that's what he calls you and I to do, to break through the darkness in people's hearts and minds, to say to them, there's better than this. There's a better life than this out there. Stand up and walk out. There's a song by Zach Williams. Um, What's it called? He's a way maker. If you've got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's the way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison-shaking savior. If you got shame, pain, uh, he's the pain taker. You got shame, he's the shame taker. Something like that. And and there's a verse in that song that says, if you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles, if you've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies. There's an answer for you. There's a better life. There's a better life. That's the message that that Jesus is calling you and I to share with the people around us. Do you feel stuck? Do you feel like you're you're in the grind? You're you're pulling in a circle all day long? There's a better life. You've been listening to the same lies and the same superstitions and the same twisted, non-gospel, graceless words for so long, stop now. There's a better life. If you've got pain, I know the one who takes pain away. You got shame, I know the one who breaks through the shame. You need freedom or saving, I know the prison-shaking savior. Yeah, yes I do, and so do you. Can I challenge you today to just walk out into your world? If if you've been the person who's living under a cloud, walk out of there. Pick up your mat and go out the door. Don't put up with the superstition and the ugly self-talk and the doubt and the darkness anymore. God called you, God made you for the life that you're living right now. Nobody could live your life better than you can because God built you for this life. It says you're his craftsmanship, his handiwork, created to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for you to do. He set this life up for you to live it and then gave you everything you need to walk right through those T-balls and knock them out of the park. He's teed up the good works for you already. All you got to do is swing. Come on, baby, knock it out of the park. 
Nobody, Billy Graham couldn't walk your life better than you can walk it because God did not set your life up for Billy Graham. He set it up for you. He did not equip Billy Graham for the life he was calling you into. He equipped you. Now, push the cloud away, pick up your mat, and walk right out of here. And go out into your world and look for people laying on their mat, whining that they got nobody, whining that it's dark, whining that they can't get to the water and say, you don't need the water. Honestly, it isn't about the water. Stand up with me and let's walk out of here.